Hello, and welcome to episode two of my so-called lab. I am Erin Hecht, and today I'll be interviewing Catherine Bryant. Uh, Catherine received her PhD in neuroscience from Emory University, and she's now a postdoc working in the anthropology department at Emory. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, so to start us out, could you tell us where's your lab? Sure. Um, my lab is in Atlanta, Georgia at Emory uh, in the anthropology department. Okay. Um, what are you working on now? So right now uh, with you and some other uh, people in anthropology um, and educational psychology, we're looking at learning uh, plasticity in the brain. So we're taking Emory grad undergraduate students uh, who are enrolled in a introductory programming course, and we are scanning their brains at the beginning of the course, in the middle of the course, and at the end of the course um, in an attempt to see if we can understand what changes happen in the brain as you learn a new uh, complex skill. Um, and so we're interested in uh, learning programming because uh, it's a complex skill that's like language in that it has its own grammar and set of rules and it codes for specific sort of semantic ideas, uh, but it's different enough from language that it might be using different processes. Um, and also because it hasn't really been studied yet. So um, there's been some work on language plasticity and then the lab that I'm in right now uh, has done some work on this looking at plasticity related to tool making which has some similarities to language learning. So this seemed kind of like a natural next step to look at other kinds of learning in the brain. Um, and the different ways that we're looking at plasticity are uh, possible structural changes. So part of the brain scan looks at how the uh, white matter is organized in the brain, and we may be able to detect signals of uh, remodeling of white matter over the course of the semester. Um, some of it looks at changes in functional activation. So students get to see a series of Java programs while they're lying in the scanner and sort of interact uh, with the programs, um, move forward through the programs and try to understand what the program is doing. So we try to see what kind of changes in activation as they learn the programming. So mm -hmm. that's those are some of the different things that we're doing as part of the study. Cool. Um, so part of the study um, is about how there are individual differences in learning um, across right. people. Can you right. talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So for this study, we didn't want to just say, well, we see a change and it's at a population level. Therefore, everyone who learns learns this way. We, were, we suspect that there's probably important individual differences in the ways people learn. We certainly know different people learn better through different strategies. So um, as part of the project, we're going to try to uh, detect individual differences in changes over time. Um, and it's possible we might see that different people have um, significant changes, but they might be in slightly different areas of the brain or they might uh, be in sort of different patterns. So we're kind of curious to see if, if any of that happens. Um, along with that, in addition to looking at how their brain may change over the course of the semester, Another way we're going to try to get to look at uh, individual variation is how they respond to questionnaires about their experience in the classroom, their learning strategies, and um, how they feel they relate to uh, the teacher and the other students in their class. So we're interested in uh, notions of belonging in the classroom and if uh, whether or not you feel like you belong in a classroom influences uh, your your success. So. Okay. Um 
So one part of this has been um, gender differences in this sense of belonging. Yes. Um, and of course, that's sort of tied in with our um, work on my so-called lab. Yes. Um, do you want to talk about that? Sure. So uh, one of the things that I'm especially interested in looking at is um, taking into account gender, uh, but in sort of novel ways. So if you did sort of a simple version of this experiment and you found gender differences in uh, the ability to learn Java programming without looking at any other variables, you might think, oh, well, women or men are better or worse at this task and sort of leave it at that. And that doesn't tell you very much about how that came to be. Um, I'm, and I think, you know, our, you and our other collaborators are, are more interested in what are the other factors that play a role in that. So we can look at things like comfort in the classroom to determine, are, is there a group of people or is there, you know, or is a certain gender more comfortable or less comfortable? And how well does that co-vary with other markers of success in the classroom? And then that can give us a more robust idea of the social factors that play a role. Um, and I personally am interested in this because I want, I am motivated to kind of look at other ways besides uh, older notions of gender difference that are more rooted in uh basic biological differences, because I think a lot of people would say that it's a lot more complicated than that, but we're just now starting to look at it in these new ways. Great. Can you tell me how you, being a woman, influences uh, the way that you approach this this type of research? Uh, sure. So as part of my training at Emory, I opted to take some sort of cross-training and get some uh some training from other disciplines besides neuroscience and besides science in general. So I ended up taking a uh, course in uh, feminist uh, science studies, which is a subdivision within women's studies that's particularly interested in looking at the history and practice of science using uh, critical feminist theory. Um, and that actually really influenced, uh, kind of opened my eyes to some patterns in science and scientific thinking that I hadn't been aware of before and kind of suggested to me that uh, scientists might not be quite as objective as we often think that we are um, because we have sort of embedded cultural notions about things that we carry into our – that influence the questions that we ask and the way we interpret the data. So I'm especially interested, um, you know, before and after you collect the data, what question you ask that determines what data you collect and then when you get the data, how you interpret that because those are both very uh, subject to personal experience and cultural uh, norms and that kind of thing. So um, that started sort of changing my relationship with science and how I um, approached it. And one thing that I noticed uh, was that we do focus a lot on gender differences when there could be other kinds of variables that we could look at. So like I just described, we don't have to just break down the classroom in terms of gender. We could break it down in terms of other variables um, like maybe previous experience in science class or – um, you know, you could look at, you know, comfort in the classroom measures or other kinds of social measures. So there's other things that you can look at, break, break uh, populations into groups. It doesn't always have to be male versus um, female. And certainly when you look at the literature, um, a lot of times you see differences, especially in neuroscience literature, being portrayed as um, males and females belong to two different categories that don't overlap. But when you look at the data, you might find that the measure, males and females overlap almost completely, and there's a very small difference, and that's what the paper focuses on. So I'm kind of interested in that and sort of pushing back on that a little bit. Um, and that brings me to another thing about neuroscience research that I think is very important right now, which is the notion of variability. So right now, um, we're seeing a lot of people take 
very large data sets. So people scan hundreds and hundreds of people um, and put these data sets online available to other scientists to use to analyze. So you don't have to go collect your own data. You have this whole huge data set. And that is great. And I want to make it clear. I think that is awesome. The more scans, the more information we have. Um, but it does lead us to some kinds of problems where in neuroscience, it's much easier to analyze these scans if you take each brain and what we call warp, which means adjust the brain so it fits a certain set of coordinates. So we actually take the brain and sort of of each individual and modify it so it fits a certain little mold. So then we can compare each brain. Um, so that has some intrinsic problems in it already. Um, the notion that there's sort of one human brain, which mm -hmm. people kind of, I think we sort of think, oh, the human brain, but it's right. like, well, there's many human brains. So um, I'm really curious to see going forward um, how we sort of tackle that issue and if we can invent new ways to analyze brains that let us take into account individual difference. Um, I can uh, cite one example, which I will have to later look up the name because I can't <laughs> think of it right now, but... Um, these authors were very interested in a part of the brain that handles recognizing faces. And when they did an individual analysis versus a global analysis, they found that individuals actually had two separate distinct areas in this inferior temporal area um, that varied in size slightly and in location slightly, as you might expect. Um, when you do a group analysis, it appears to just be one sort of wash, you know, wishy-washy area over a fairly large part of the brain. So the 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 global sort of averaged analysis actually distorted the data mm -hmm. in a way that actually was obscured some more interesting complexity. So I think more studies like that going forward will help us get a better understanding of how the brain is organized. Hmm. So. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, so you talked about how um, being female influences the way you view and approach science. Um, can you talk about how being female has influenced you being a scientist or, uh, or how it influences women in science in general? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I would say, you know, when you when I entered uh, graduate school, it's like someone who was training to become a scientist. I had a certain view about how science worked that wasn't quite borne out in what I observed. Um, and sort of the further I've gone in in my career, the more I've sort of um, notice that uh, women who I uh, women scientists who I respect and I see are doing really amazing work are often not sort of viewed in the same light as the same senior male uh, faculty in their in their same field. So I frequently see women scientists in particular being described as hardworking, um, having a lot of attention to detail, being very organized, um, which are good things. And actually, I think, are you know, if you are, want to be a successful scientist, those are absolutely critical. Um, but they sort of aren't as exciting as the way I think male scientists are sometimes described uh, by other scientists, um, which is often sort of terms like brilliant. Um, you know, I've heard them call each other geniuses, you know. Uh, it, so the, the feeling is a little bit different. And sometimes I feel like male scientists talk about other male scientists in a way that indicates they have more excitement about what that person will do in the future. And I don't often hear that same excitement when we talk about women in the same field. So um, I guess it would be to be totally real about it, it has been a little bit hard to deal with as you get because you get further up and you think, oh, well, it's just going to get more objective and people right. and the people's brilliance will just shine through and everyone mm -hmm. will know. And it's sort of like, no, we're all human. And okay. turns out we all grew up in the same like in similar social structures and we're sort of vulnerable to the same kinds of ways of 
of framing people. Um, I am seeing moves to sort of change. I'm seeing people are talking about it now, which is exciting. So um, I guess as a woman scientist, it is an exciting time to be a woman scientist. (laughs) I would have to agree. Um, So can you tell me where you see yourself in 10 years? Sure. So uh, I think as we all know, the I think as someone in science, I'm always a little nervous about how the funding environment will be. But let's imagine that, you know, I continue to receive grants. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think uh, having a laboratory would actually be a lot of fun. Um, I've thought a lot about how I would manage a laboratory um, because although I do enjoy the actual fundamentals of doing science, I think in some ways I actually enjoy the social interactions within the laboratory more um, than that. And I enjoy interacting with people. Um, And I've had some experience running lab meetings when my advisor was away on conferences, which I'm sure many other graduate students Mm -hmm. can relate to that story. Uh, And I kind of loved it. I liked being able to engage with each member of the laboratory in a group setting. Um, I'm very passionate about making sure that everybody's voice is heard, that no one's left – falling through the cracks or if I don't want anyone to feel too shy to talk about something in the group. And so I like to encourage sort of everyone to help each other out in a communal way during a laboratory meeting. And I think part of it stems from I've been I've worked in several labs. Uh, I kind of had a sort of circuitous route to finally get my PhD. And, you know, depending on who your boss is, like any job, sometimes you do feel like you've been left to sort of flounder around and, oh, you know, hopefully you'll figure out you know, <laughs> this problem that no one else in the lab has been able to figure out. And then you find out later that person, like, you know, walked out one day and never came back because the problem was hard. And, you know, you don't want those kind of problems because of communication issues. So I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of communication between laboratory members. And I'm a fan of everyone in the lab feeling like they have authorship in the work and that their ideas are respected. So that would be for me, like, kind of building a lab with that sort of um, – structure, which I kind of flirt with calling a non-hierarchical laboratory structure. I don't know how realistic that is, but um, something like that, I think, would be rewarding and interesting to undertake. I think a lot of uh, young people in science would jump at the chance to be oh, part of something oh, like I hope that. so. Well, <laughs> I'll let you all know when I'm hiring. So, <laughs> um, so going on is sort of a what-if type of question. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you talked about what you think you'd like your lab to be like. Um what do you think is one of the biggest unanswered questions in your field that this lab of yours might hope to address? Right. So this is this is a big question. And I think um, so because, you know, I'm in neuroscience, which is a bit neuroimaging in particular is a bit of a wild west still right now. Um, so it's, it's always a little bit hard to predict. But certainly what I'm seeing is um, a lot of people coming together interested in the structure of the human brain, but not sure the best way to go about um, mapping it. And So around the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, there were a lot of sort of dedicated laboratories that did very fine dissections of the human brain, drew these beautiful illustrations, um, and that was sort of like the final word on how the brain was organized. And then later that, uh, our friend Corbinian Broadman came Mm -hmm. along. If you're in neuroscience, you've heard of Broadman areas because we still use his areas. and he was in the early part of the 20th century. We still use his maps for um, understanding how the human brain is organized. So if you read a neuroimaging paper like an fMRI paper, a current paper, they will frequently cite the Broadman areas as the areas – as understanding the areas of activation in their 
in their study, which is kind of breathtaking considering, I mean, it's almost 100 years ago now mm-hmm. that he made that map. And that's the map that we're still going to. So clearly, I think we need a new map. I mean, his map was good, but I think we've got newer technologies. Um, it's better than getting – we can do better than having a single map of a single brain that somebody made a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think that's a big question. How do we approach mapping the human brain? How do we account for individual variation? It's going to be a very data-intensive project, I think. So that's part of it. It's going to be a lot of laboratories working together. So that's another big challenge because scientists aren't always good collaborators, but I think we're learning to become better and better collaborators because it's turning out to be totally necessary. The other piece that I think is really interesting is placing the human brain in the context of other mammalian brains and understanding how they're related and how they're different. And we're very used to this notion of sort of a hierarchical, well, the human brain is the best brain and it's the most complicated. I remember Mm -hmm. being told in seventh grade, the human brain is the most complex structure in the universe. That's a breathtaking claim. I mean, I was like, oh, this is so exciting. And I mean, maybe that's why I'm here today. I don't know. But um, it you know, certainly is an exciting thought to have. But I think we all know by now other mammal brains are pretty cool too. But we have to find a way to sort of map our brain and then map their brains and see what we can glean about our different abilities, our strengths. And I think there's going to be a lot of cool stuff we find out about what other mammals can do that we don't have even have on our radar. I'm thinking particularly of this like really strange – and cool presentation I saw several years ago at the J.B. Johnston Club about um, manatees. Um, so they have like little bristles all over their bodies, which I didn't know. I mean, they have whiskers, but apparently they have like tiny little whiskers everywhere. And they did some experiments that showed that these little whiskers can detect the tiniest water vibrations. Like, I mean, I, just incredible. I mean, uh, tiny current fluctuations. And we know that manatees live in these very slow-moving rivers, so they must be detecting very minute currents. Um, and they're using that for something. I mean, that's a really complex neural ability, um, probably having to do with navigation, maybe mm-hmm. having to do with understanding tides or like the time of year. Who knows? Um, but it's super cool. And so it's like they have this special ability we didn't know about. But they're totally right. blind. And so we we're like, oh, well, they're just dumb sea cows. But they're doing something else cool that we are just starting to understand. So Yeah, you have to wonder how much, how many more things there are like that out there just waiting to be. Yes. Yes, exactly. I, another one I could, I don't know why I keep thinking of aquatic animals, but maybe because it's just such a different environment, but, you know, with dolphins and echolocation. Mm-hmm. And I think they're probably doing something with three dimensional navigation and modeling that, and they're, you know, they have huge parietal lobes. So I think their parietal lobes are like very busy with mm-hmm. this echolocation information, but I think we don't know a whole lot about it. So, right. yeah. Um, well, continuing on our theme of, uh, thinking about thinking big about mm-hmm. the future. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see the role of science and society changing oh, in the future? Man. Okay, so this is a really cool uh, question because of the timing right now, um, especially as Americans. But now we're sort of in a global society, so you know American politics affects everyone. So um, I think since our most recent election, we've seen a huge uptick in the amount of scientists that are getting politically involved and. I think for you and I, like we coming up through doing our grad program, it was still sort of, oh, well, scientists stay out of it. We're objective. Mm-hmm. We're busy in the lab. We don't have – A, we don't have time. B, it sort of I think was viewed as interfering with science or, or not not um, fitting the goals of science to also be politically active. I think the idea is like we're objective and we don't want to get involved in these sort of battles. Um, and I think now scientists are realizing that, you know – and it was very clear. Once you take away, start taking away funding, you realize it's yeah, actually science is political because somebody made a decision to fund our science. Now somebody can make a decision to take away our funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
more recently, I've gotten involved with a group called Science for the People, um, which is an explicitly political sci- like political group of scientists um, that see no contradiction in, in a politically active scientist. Uh, and it's a group that has its roots in the 60s and 70s in, uh, in the United States. Back when apparently scientists back then also figured out that um, politics and science uh, do mix, I guess you could say. So um, and there's different ways I think scientists can approach this. You could look into something like science for the people, depending on where your politics lie. This is a very um, they would call themselves progressive group and they're interested. For example, some of the groups are doing a lot of work on fair housing, um, access to uh, food and those kinds of things. So you can. Think about the ways that science can tackle questions that improve um, people's lives uh, and that have political ramifications. So I think we're going to see more of that, not less, hmm. going forward. And I'm, I'm actually really excited to see where that goes. Me too. Yeah. I think that could only have good good effects <laughs> yeah. for the world in general. I think so too. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Okay. But thank you very much, Catherine, for, for coming in well, and being interviewed. Thanks for having me. <laughs>